We return to our interview with Dan Kovalik as he is addressing some issues regarding annexation and referendums, the differences and the legalities. Referenda that are occurring as we speak in the Ukraine-Russian disputed areas. Enjoy. Now again, all this truthfully under international law is a bit complicated in terms of regions' ability to secede from other countries, but obviously in the UN Charter, which respects national sovereignty and self-governance, there is a certain amount of support for that. But here's the other irony, is that this doesn't look any different than the secession of various republics from the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s, which the U.S. and NATO fully supported. In some of these countries like Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia, Montenegro, Kosovo, seceded with referendums and some without. But the point is NATO and the U.S. encouraged them to secede and, of course, did so with bombing, the 79-day bombing of Serbia in 1999, and even got an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice, also known as the World Court, which is the highest court in the world, saying in particular that the secession of Kosovo was legal. Mm -hmm. So the NATO and the U.S. have a bit of a problem here because... That decision very much applies to this situation here. And I think if they had to decide whether the referendums of these republics in Ukraine were legal under that decision, I think the International Court of Justice would have to find they are legal. And Dan, let me ask you this in that context, because this is really the crux of what I really appreciate your legal expertise in. We also need to remember that these referendums are not coming out of the, the blue. They're, they're coming in the context of an illegal coup in 2014 that overthrew the government of a democratically elected, whatever you think of the government, they were democratically elected. And as a consequence of that coup, these things started to occur, the repression and that type of thing. We've already talked about how over 80% of the people in the East, they had voted for the very president that was couped out. So it's that context, I think, is is important. Lastly, the arguments that it's an illegal referendums go kind of along the lines, at least one of the arguments, is that the Ukrainian constitution requires that any changes in the territory of Ukraine be approved by referendum of all the Ukrainian people, not just those areas. But in fact, that constitution was trashed with the the coup. I mean, they overthrew the, they threw the whole government out. That constitution was out. So it's interesting how they cite uh, the constitution, yet they have their cake and eat it too type of thing. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah. You know, and there's a great a commentator that I want to cite. His name is Mark Sloboda, who's, I believe, lives in Russia, maybe St. Petersburg. Very good commentator. And I heard him recently, and I think what he said was very apt. And he said, look, When the Soviet Union collapsed, Ukraine was in a very precarious position because, again, it is this country that's borders have shifted many times over the years. The most recent one had been, of course, in 1954, when Khrushchev simply gave Ukraine Crimea, gifted it to them, right? And there was this tension between the West and the East, between the more Western West of Ukraine and the more Russian, pro-Russian, Russian-speaking East. First of all, the U.S. tried to exploit those tensions really since the collapse of the Soviet Union. 
again, to challenge Russia and try to undermine Russia by, by keeping those tensions alive. But still, despite all that, the Ukrainians were pretty adept till 2014 in managing those tensions and keeping a very delicate balance between the West and the East to keep the country together. But the coup that the U.S. supported in 2014, as this Mark Soboda very eloquently stated, it broke that delicate balance. It brought in power a very right-wing, anti-Russian, anti-ethnic Russian government and destroyed the balance between the West and the East. And I don't think that that balance will ever be brought back now. And so that has to be looked at when you're considering what's happening right now, that Ukraine was broken in 2014. That is the truth of it. A civil war broke out, 14,000 people died, and now we're seeing further consequences of that. But to blame Russia for that is completely unfair. If anyone is to blame, it's the United States who, for frankly, going back to the 20s, has been supporting neo-Nazis in Ukraine and certainly has been supporting neo-Nazis since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, has been intervening in there, again, to, to foster racist tensions there, and ultimately in 2014 succeeded in bringing a right-wing government to power that had significant neo-Nazi elements. Thanks, Dan, for bringing it back to the 2014 coup. I think you've really do a nice job of reframing this. It's kind of like if somebody just walks up to me and punches me in the face and starts a fight and I get into a fight and I harm that person, it seems like whatever harm I do to that person in response to the fact that they started the deal. And I think that's the thing about the coup, right? The coup is completely left out. We're told that Russia is unprovoked, yet in fact, the coup should be seen as part of the provocation of this continued military expansion towards the border. And really, Putin has said many times that at the end of the day, all countries have national security interests. We have them and that they are increasingly and unrelentingly being violated. And at some point, you have to drop the hammer, so to speak, and defend your country and national security interests. Can you include in your remarks the legitimacy of that perspective with the national security concerns that he expressed and the fact that as you started this very important dialogue with today, the first thing you said was this really started in 2014? Yeah, so Ukraine is the largest country in Europe and it has a huge border with Russia. So what happens in Ukraine has huge impacts on Russia. And again, the U.S. has exploited Ukraine for years in ways, again, to try to undermine the stability of Russia. And the U.S. has been very open about this. There's a RAND Corporation. RAND Corporation is a defense contractor. They wrote a report in 2019 talking about how Ukraine could be used to undermine Russia. You had Lloyd Austin, the U.S. Defense Secretary, in the recent months saying that we wanted this war in Ukraine to continue in order to weaken Russia. And of course, we've done everything we could to continue this war and to prevent peace from breaking out. And so Russia is very painfully aware of this. And of course, as you mentioned, while Russia or the Soviet Union, Gorbachev was promised that if he let the wall come down in in Germany, let Germany reunite, he was promised that NATO would not move an inch east 
of Germany. The U.S. quickly and NATO quickly reneged on this promise and brought NATO all the way up to the borders of Russia. Now, could you imagine if Russia brought a Warsaw Pact like a group with troops and missiles up to the border of the United States? This is inconceivable. The last time Russia tried to do that with the Cuban Missile Crisis, we almost had a nuclear war. It would be unacceptable. And it has been unacceptable for Russia. And they've been begging us for years to deal with it, to give them some breathing room. And we have refused time and again. And then, again, they're confronted then in 2014 and after with the government in Kiev that was not only hostile to Russia, but to its own Russian-speaking people. And again, if, if the shoe were on the other foot, Mexico, the, the victim of a coup by Russia in which an anti-American government came to power and was attacking English-speaking people in northern Mexico, leading to you know, a million and a half English-speaking Mexicans seeking refuge in the U.S., you better believe that the U.S. would respond to this. This was exactly what Russia uh, was facing. In fact, some have called it a reverse Cuban Missile Crisis. That is to say that Russia, for years, has been facing the threat that the U.S. saw in Cuba in 1962 when Soviet missiles were put there. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the U.S. pretends that this is not an is- issue or shouldn't be an issue for Russia is just blatant hypocrisy and insincere. And, and, but that the media of the U.S., even liberal media like NPR, or that they don't acknowledge this reality is just incredible. That's where we are. I think you really are right about the media and the acculturation that we get from our information that is so lacking in the Russian perspective is so one-sided. The fairness and accuracy in reporting, the FAIR wrote some time ago back in January of 2022, they reported that between December 6, 2021 and January 6, 2022, during that one-month period, the acculturating bias of mainstream media was apparent. The New York Times ran 228 articles that refer to Ukraine but none of them referenced the pro-Nazi elements in the Ukraine's politics. The same could be said for Washington Post that had 201 articles on the topic. So we're completely brainwashed to support our foreign policy. In fact, the propaganda coming back is that there's not a neo-Nazi influence denied. So that's just one element. In our last few minutes with you, you we have these referendums coming up in Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, in Zaporizhia were the other two regions that you alluded to that were going to have these elections from the 23rd to the 27th. It seems to me this is a, it's like a chess game in a sense. And Putin and Russia, this is like a, a pretty sly kind of chess move in a sense, although it appears legitimate as well. But if these referendums go on and they're going to be between the 23rd of September and the 27th, because they're concerned about people getting bombed by the Ukraine forces when they go to the polls, that type of thing. But can you speak a little bit about what you see as the tactical significance of these referendums and whether others may follow if Ukraine continues to refuse to come to the peace table? And then lastly, I've been reading reports that are well documented that in March that Zelensky and Russia were close to a peace agreement 
but it was Joe Biden-led interest in the, the UK leader, Boris Johnson, that intervened to make sure that would not occur for exactly Lloyd Austin's point that they wanted to continue a, a conflict to weaken Russia. Can you comment on, on those issues? Yeah. So to start with the last issue first, yes, we know now that uh, in April of, of this year, there was a deal apparently that both the Ukraine and Russia could agree to to bring peace between those countries, and that Boris Johnson made a surprise visit to Kiev to urge Zelensky not to sign it. And in fact, Zelensky was persuaded not to sign it. Now, again, this actually looks like what happened in the former Yugoslavia as well. There were, before 1999, before the NATO bombing of Serbia, there were two different peace deals that the U.S. intervened in to, to kill because they didn't want peace to break out. And that's exactly what's happening here in Ukraine. Now, in terms of the referendums, you know what I think this will mean if they do vote the republics to go with Russia and to become part of Russia, of course, this changes in a way, well, in a big way, the dynamic between Ukraine and Russia in this conflict, because now those areas that are the site of the conflict will be part of Russia, and therefore Russia will see any attack on those republics as an attack on Russia. And that makes it a lot more riskier and costly for Ukraine and NATO to continue assaulting those regions, because now they are at war with Russia. I mean, they're literally, right now you have a proxy war with Russia. This would be an actual war between NATO and Russia. So you're looking at a possible World War III. So, I mean, in some ways, this is a risky move for those republics and for Russia, for sure. But it is a move that will increase the costs on the West and the risks on the rest for continuing to assault those republics. And, and Russia's decided it's willing to do that. And we'll see. We'll see how that all plays out. I, I do think that the people in that region, by the way, by and large, do want to become part of Russia. I think that they are tired of being assaulted by Kiev. I think they feel that Kiev and the West has abandoned them at best if they're not downright hostile towards them. And they see Russia as their brother and their protector. And so I, I think if they vote to go with Russia, I think that vote will be an accurate one. And we'll see what the consequences are at that point. Did you read that address by Putin uh, yesterday, Wednesday, September the 21st, 2022? Yes. I asked because I want to share just a couple of excerpts with our audience. So on the 21st of September, Putin's address, an excerpt of it, said, Today I'm addressing you, all citizens of our country, referring to Russia, of course, people of different generations, ages, and, and ethnicities, the people of our great motherland, all who are united by the great historical Russia, soldiers, officers, and volunteers who are fighting on the front line and doing their combat duty, our brothers and sisters in the Donetsk and Lugansk peoples, republics, Kherson and Zaporizhzhia regions, and other areas that have been liberated from the neo-Nazi regime. So he refers to the Kiev government led by Zelensky, the post-coup government, as a neo-Nazi regime. We've addressed that on a number of shows, that this is more than just empty rhetoric. It's very real based on the makeup of the cabinet positions post-coup, as well as the military activities of overt repression and 
outright execution that has occurred in the East on regular occasions since the post-coup period began. He goes on, the issue concerns the necessary imperative measures to protect the sovereignty, security, and territorial integrity of Russia and support the desire and will of our compatriots to choose their future independently and the aggressive policy of some Western elites who are doing their utmost to preserve their domination and with this aim in view are trying to block and suppress any sovereign and independent development centers in order to continue to aggressively force their will and pseudo values on other countries and nations. What Putin is speaking to is that the absolute priority, non-negotiable priority, is for the West to be the preeminent singular polar power, namely the United States. There is no sharing power in the world under this model. And the expression of sovereign will and economic markets that threaten that dominance immediately will become grounds for sanctions and regime change in some form or fashion. And importantly, notice that he speaks to some Western elites. He does not indict all U.S. people, as we generally do with Russians. He refers to these high power structure individuals who are steering the world, in his perception, in a way in which it inhibits countries' free rights, such as Russia and China and India and other powerful interests through sanctioning and otherwise in order to remain in that dominant economic position. That's the position of Putin, whether you agree with it or not. I do think it's important to realize that. And then finally, the other part of the excerpt, and these are all connected paragraphs, the goal of that part of the West is to weaken, divide, and ultimately destroy our country, namely Russia. They are saying openly now that in 1991, they managed to split up the Soviet Union, and now is the time to do the same to Russia, which must be divided into numerous regions that would be at deadly feud with each other. They devised these plans long ago. They encouraged groups of international terrorists in the Caucasus and moved NATO's offensive infrastructure close to our borders. They used indiscriminate Russophobia as a weapon, including by nurturing the hatred of Russia for decades, primarily in Ukraine, which was designed to become an anti-Russia bridgehead. They turned the Ukrainian people into cannon fodder and pushed them into a war with Russia, which they unleashed back in 2014, referring to the coup, of course. They used the army against civilians and organized a genocide, blockade, and terror against those who refused to recognize the government that was created in Ukraine as a result of a state coup, end quote. The speech, of course, goes on, but those are just words that I thought are worth our reflecting on and are actually consistent with the research over the many years that we've been focusing on this subject of U.S. foreign policy and Russia, yet it's completely absent from discourse in the United States. And that ignorance that is a result of those omissions and misrepresentations, I think, takes us closer to an unthinkable potential nuclear conflict. Unfortunately, we, we do not have the time to go over the whole speech, because only in the full context of a speech can we avoid politicizing or misrepresenting the speaker's words. But I really l like the historical overview that he gave. 
Wow. It's kind of amazing the difference between their leaders and ours in terms of <laughs> how they speak, what they know about. It's really kind of incredible. But No, I think you really hit the nail on the head. I was just thinking the same thing. Like, you know, you listen to Joe Biden talking at the U.N. and just repeating the same shallow narrative that just seems to lack internal logic and honesty if you've been closely following all sides of the issues since 2014 and are well-versed in U.S. and Russia interventions in other countries since, since the end of the Cold War. It's hard to imagine. It sounds like you're just singing the praise of Putin or something like that. But I've just been following what he's been saying for years now. And he just seems to be very articulate and very well versed and just moves very slowly diplomatically. Nobody can really push his buttons and provoke him. That's the impression that I get. I agree. I mean, I think it's hard to argue against assertion that he's a great leader. I mean, you know, that the media can't even give him respect for that. You know, even if they think he's the devil, you do give the devil his due and they give him no due at all. You know, well, Dan, I thank you so much for your time. I would like to stay in contact with you as this process unfolds. Dan, before we let you go, you've written a number of important books. You write articles fairly regularly. If people are interested in following your work, can you share with us what would be the best pathway towards that access? Well, I have a number of books you can find at skyhorsepublishing.com. And I'm very active on Twitter at Daniel M. Kovalik. Very good. And that's K-O-V-A-L-I-K. That is correct. Dan, thank you so much for bringing light into darkness. And uh, we look forward to following your work into the future and appreciate very much this important dialogue that we've had here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Very well done. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it. I, I really like the Kosovo and the Yugoslavia references. So, so these referendums, from a right or wrong perspective, I guess that's how I could have framed it, right? Uh, it seems to be the right thing to do. The legal status, people can argue all day, I guess, back and forth on that deal. But at the end of the day... Yeah, I don't see any way out of this. I I, I don't see any... Yeah, I I agree. I I don't, you know, again, this the die was cast a long time ago. And this was going to happen. And yeah, I agree. I think it is the right thing to do. Again, thanks again for this morning. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. We'll be in touch. Thank you so much. Okay, friend. Bye-bye. See you next week. Don't be late.